Sam Tracy. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And thanks for tuning in to Season 5 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs, including policy, science, culture, and so much more. This show is produced by Twid Media, whose members are all alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome nonprofit working to end the war on drugs. We also produce a weekly email newsletter and have some other exciting projects on the way. You can check them all out on our website, thisweekindrugs.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Sarah and I will talk about some of the biggest drug news from stories from the last week and some exciting things that are coming on up in the weeks ahead. Uh, but before jumping into that, we're going to just give a quick shout out to our sponsor this week, which is listeners like you. Uh, so as many of our listeners know, we have a Patreon page where you can support us with a monthly donation of whatever amount you want. And we have recently revamped it with new sponsorship levels and rewards. So head on over to patreon.com twid to check it out and become a patron. And so with that, Sarah, would you like to start things off with our first big story? So for our first story, this one, I know a lot of our listeners maybe heard a little bit too much about the federal government this week, but that is what we're getting started with. And it might sound a little bit familiar because the Office of Management and Budget suggested this week in looking at the overall federal budget, Mm -hmm. cutting the Office of National Drug Control Policy which is ONDCP, cutting their budget by 95% or effectively eliminating about $340 million of funding. And if that sounds familiar, it's because the same suggestion or a very similar suggestion was made last year when they were looking at doing budget cuts. Mm-hmm. And so, it's I don't know, it seems interesting, but a former ONDCP official uh, speaking to CBS said that the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, has really wanted to take control of their budget for a long time now because they see it mm-hmm. as something that's under their their purview. And I don't know. This I remember when we talked about this a little bit the last time or posted on Facebook, mm-hmm. there were a lot of mixed feelings about this. And people right. in the movement are sort of still... And myself, I'm still sort of questioning whether this is a good thing, a bad thing. Is it a neutral thing? Yeah, because the ONDCP oftentimes is driving the really punitive kind of prohibitionist drug policies. I mean, thinking of people from the ONDCP, I mean, Kevin Sabet used to work there. And so that's the sort of person, uh, for folks unfamiliar, Kevin Sabet leads pretty much the only anti-marijuana legalization group out there, Project Sam. And he had worked with multiple White Houses. So it's kind of a bipartisan thing that they're kind of in charge of fighting back against reform so in a good in a certain sense it is kind of a good thing but i think you know they do a lot of other services about opioid prevention and that sort of thing some consensus kind of stuff so um this is less money going towards that and the opioid epidemic fighting and that sort of thing yeah and i think it's interesting you know there's been a lot about ondcp in the news and we'll talk more about it in this episode Mm -hmm. um but really, one of their biggest responsibilities, you know, like I said, this was the budget cut was proposed last year, but it wasn't followed through with. Instead, they cut the staff by about 50% and cut some of their mm-hmm. responsibilities. And so right now, two of their biggest things are really distributing grants, um, particularly the mm-hmm. high-intensity drug trafficking areas and drug-free communities. And so 
the uh, OMB is looking at basically moving those to the Department of Justice and the Department of Health and Human Services, which would essentially make the ONDCP almost pointless. It would have no clause mm -hmm. to do really anything. Um, right, because so much power of an agency comes from its budget and being able to steer it towards projects that it likes. And so just splitting that up is going to, you know, basically destroy the agency. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's I don't know. It'll be really interesting. Um, we'll see kind of how things play out over the next month, I guess. Um, but one thing I did want to mm -hmm. note, you know, the, the dealing with the government shutdown, um, there was a lot of talk about the public health emergency for the opioid crisis. Um and mm -hmm. the acting secretary of health and human services did extend that for about 90 days before everything went to effect on friday so at least we have that going on even if we don't have much else in the way of mm -hmm. drug policy council and policymakers. yeah and it is interesting seeing all of this it makes me understand a lot more uh one of the headlines that are coming up that you i think were kind of hinting at there yes when it's when it's basically about to be decimated it makes a lot more sense um so we'll get to that in a moment perfect well <laughs> let's move on and so yeah for our, our next big story this week uh moving outside of the u.s uh, gender equality activists in Sri Lanka are criticizing the country's government for flip-flopping on both a major drug policy and a sex discrimination issue, which is women's ability to purchase alcohol. And last week, the country's finance minister announced that they would be ending the four-decade-long ban on women buying alcohol, which was put in place by conservative Buddhists in 1979. So in his statements, he actually specifically cited that the reforms were about advancing gender equality saying they were trying to get rid of old laws that discriminated against women. Uh, and it did come with some other reforms, too, all regarding alcohol, um, but also ending some restrictions on women working in the industry. Uh, previously, they could work for alcohol companies, but they needed to get a special permit to do so, and men didn't. They could just all do it automatically, so that is obviously a, a big issue there, too. But then... Just days after this announcement, uh, the president, uh, President Sirisena, came out and reversed the decision, apparently after a backlash from certain segments of society, the more conservative elements. And so there was a good story from Al Jazeera with some quotes from activists about it, um, criticizing this, uh, which, I, of course, does make a lot of sense because one day they're trying to say that they're ending a law that they see as discriminatory. And then after that, they go, oh, never mind. And most of the backlash, at least on its face, um, was about in encouraging alcohol. So it was more from like teetotaler people than, say, people who were outright sexists. Okay. They were saying, hey, we should ban it for the type who want to ban it for everyone and see this as a loosening. But still, there's obviously an impossible to untangle element of sexism mm -hmm. involved in this, too. And yeah, so for, first thoughts about this I, very, very quick flip flop. I mean, it's it's baffling in a lot of ways, I think, um, mm -hmm. to kind of I, maybe we're just used to a society where some sort of public polling would be done or like opinion. They would they mm -hmm. would look at something like this ahead of time before they make some big statement like that and do some kind of policy change. Right. And it's a lot of dysfunction. In yeah. Government, but that seems a little familiar. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, it just is surprising to see um, the amount of influence, I guess, that this mm -hmm. majority or this conservative Buddhist faction has on mm -hmm. the government. Um, and 
Yeah. Yeah, because it is interesting that, and I'll admit, I'm not an expert on Sri Lanka by any means, but I did some digging into it, and it's that they do have a pretty strong kind of teetotaler culture. It's not alcohol isn't very popular because eighty uh, percent of women in the country uh, say that they've never tried alcohol. Um, and even though men are legally allowed to, to purchase it, still a majority, 56% of men have still never tried alcohol in their wow. life. Um, and so that's pretty significant that even the folks who are allowed to, a majority still don't. Um, and it's interesting because in the U.S., to draw the distinction where it's obviously legal for people of uh, all genders to be purchasing alcohol, only 14% of adults have not tried it. Um, so a full 86% have at least tried it at some point. Um, so that is a pretty massive gap. Yeah, and I appreciate those numbers. That definitely helps contextualize um, all of this and, and put it into perspective. But I, this, is, mm-hmm. this is fascinating, and I, I really enjoy when we get to kind of dive into this another culture. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And for folks who are big podcast fans, there's a really fantastic, and I'll have to find the link to it and put it in the show notes. I know it was an NPR podcast that covered a kind of opposite case of sex discrimination in alcohol in the U.S. Apparently back in the mid-1900s, there are actually some states, including Oklahoma, where women were actually allowed to purchase alcohol at a younger age than men, um, which was still a sex discrimination thing. But basically at the time, the idea was that women were more responsible than men and could handle drinking younger, apparently. Um, and then in 1976, there was a Supreme Court case that uh, ruled that unconstitutional, saying it violated the Equal Protection Clause and that you couldn't have different ages for that. So it's interesting how sexism can go in kind of both directions. But we'll definitely be following up on this story to see if uh, it gets maybe flip-flopped on once again. <laughs> in, yeah, very interesting. But so moving mm-hmm. on to our last second to last big story my my last big story um we are talking about drug sniffing dogs in colorado and Mm. i think this one also touches on stuff that we have talked about maybe more broadly on the podcast before and so it's nice to finally dive into it but the colorado court of appeals ruled that canines trained to detect marijuana can't be used to determine probable cause for searches because marijuana is now legal at the state level and they can't really tell if the dog smelled marijuana if it smelled something else kind of what is going on there Mm -hmm. um and really my favorite quote came from the police chief, Tony Davenport, and he said, the issue is marijuana has become legal in the state of Colorado. And so the dog cannot testify as to whether or not they were sniffing marijuana or an illegal drug. And I mean, that's a great point, but I just really appreciated the language of the fact. Police dogs don't talk. I know, right? What? It's. I, I thought. We've oh. been misled. Well, that changes things. <laughs> but. But that is interesting because, I mean, from what I understand, police dogs are incredibly expensive to train. And so many police departments only have one of them or something. And so this actually is kind of a big change that they have to retire a bunch of, you know, canine officers, as they like to call them. But it is a significant uh, resource. Yeah, and it's interesting, actually. So they do have their retraining. um, Well, Pueblo now has two 
campaigns, right? They have the mm-hmm. old one from before and they're not retiring him. Instead, because so marijuana is still illegal at the federal level and for people under 21. So they figure they can take this dog to mm-hmm. schools if they need to and he could be, still be used for any like federal drug mm-hmm. cases. Um, but then they are getting a new dog that will be trained to completely, you know, ignore, to be desensitized to the smell of marijuana. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I thought that there, yeah. Cause I guess there is still a use for finding marijuana in, in certain situations, even though it is legal. And even though I believe it's no longer grounds for a search by itself in Colorado, as it isn't in Massachusetts and other States where it's legal, um, there are certain scenarios where it wouldn't be allowed or if, they were looking for a large quantity or something like that. So I guess that does make some sense. Yeah. And I, I guess one kind of last thing, the, the decision came out of a 2015 case um, in Moffat County, and it was presented to, in front of a three-judge panel. And they issued their ruling in July saying that a dog sniff could result in an alert with respect to something for which, under Colorado law, a person has a legitimate expectation of privacy. And mm-hmm. I thought it was... It's just really nice to see this. Like I said, we've talked about it in broader terms before. So it's nice to like dive into it and see it laid out in legalese and really like legal terms and the expectation mm-hmm. of privacy and why these things you know aren't allowed anymore. Yeah, because it is true that you know some people who are carrying marijuana on their person, it may be very uh, not private if they don't <laughs> seal it up properly, and some people don't mind that but then it is definitely true that even if it's sealed up and you know doesn't smell to the human nose that i'm sure these dogs can still pick up on it so that is good that we're having even police canines respect people's (laughs) privacy now so yes good on so they're kind of ahead of the curve so we'll definitely pay attention to what other departments and, and states are doing to deal with this absolutely and so then for our final big story of this week in massachusetts my current state Two state legislators have introduced a bill that would essentially make it the first sanctuary state, not for immigration laws, but for marijuana laws. Uh, The bill, called the Refusal of Complicity Act, would prevent state and local law enforcement from spending any time or resources going after state legal marijuana. According to an article in the Boston Globe, it was conceived of by Will Luzier, who was the director of the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol in Massachusetts back in 2016. So this is basically copying the sanctuary state model um, for folks unfamiliar that's typically for federal immigration laws um, saying that you know local police won't go after people just because they're an undocumented immigrant and leaving that to the federal government this would be trying to do the same thing Um, and so i also was inspired i saw a recent tweet by you sarah saying that uh, the reporting on bills is terrible unless you include a bill number so i was sure to look it up and it's hd 4492. So if you're in Massachusetts, uh, 4492, tell your legislators to support Thank it. you, Sam. When, it's, when I'm doing the news and going through all my headlines, it's one of my biggest pet peeves mm-hmm. when there's a news article in like a legitimate news source and they're, they're right. talking in depth about a bill and then there's no bill number. And I, so I have to mm-hmm. go and like search by keyword. So thank you for removing that problem. No problem. No problem. But I think this is, it's really interesting to see state legislators use you know this this sanctuary framework and Mm -hmm. and kind of apply it's i don't know if it's quite an intersection of issues i mean it they definitely do intersect but it's really interesting to watch Mm -hmm. how this framework 
can be applied to different issues. And I think I would yeah. have to imagine we're going to see other state legislators follow suit if this is, mm-hmm. you know, if this is well received. Like, there are plenty, you know, California or any of these other states where marijuana is being strongly protected mm-hmm. by attorney generals and governors and, and so on. Yeah, because no states have passed this yet, but according to the Globe, there is also a similar bill pending in California. So maybe Massachusetts and California will be the two racing to do this, which would be cool. Um, but yeah, it is interesting, like you said, the intersection of different political issues. And I mean, not just talking about drug policy, but just politics in general. It's also fascinating that these are just two issues where it is basically a state's rights thing, where states are refusing to enforce federal law. Um, but they're both issues that Democrats are really the ones who are anti-federal government on it, um, because this bill was both in- introduced the two sponsors, uh, Representative Dave Rogers and Mike Connolly. They're both Democrats, like very far left ones. Mike Connolly uh, is a Bernie Democrat. <laughs> it's his first time- term in the legislature. He just unseated a long-term, more conservative Democrat from Cambridge. And so it's interesting that this is, you know, more of a leftist thing when traditionally, you know, it's more the right wing of American politics that's really into states' rights and, you know, screwing over the federal government. So it's interesting to see how this all breaks down. Absolutely. This is, you know, a little bit uh, tangential, but if anyone wants to see a really uh, phenomenal example of earned media and uh, leftist politicians taking on kind of the states' rights issue, there's a legislator named Adam Morfeld from the Nebraska Unicameral who gave a speech on the floor earlier this week, um, talking about how he would, you know, have to be dragged off the floor if they wanted him to stop promoting, like, dreamer legislation or pro, um, Mm, you know, pro dreamer. mm -hmm. And the Nebraska Republican Party decided to turn that into a video and use it against him. And he's very, uh, very social media savvy. He's he's maybe 30 years old. He's a millennial politician. And he just was very quick to spin this around, say they were kind enough to share my speech and this is me talking about this and blah, blah. And so I think, yeah, it's a really solid example of how where states' rights kind of becomes a bipartisan thing, sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both for, for various issues, but yeah, both sides use it. When yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so, yeah, we'll definitely be keeping up to date on uh, that bill. Again, it's bill number 4492. And uh, now just a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you. Join them at patreon.com slash twit. If you've listened to This Week in Drugs before, you know that we have a 30-second commercial each week, which helps cover the cost of producing the show. But that's not our biggest source of funding. The big majority of our money comes from listeners like you. We sign up to support our work with a small monthly contribution. At patreon.com slash twid, you can get some great perks for as little as $1 a month. This money helps us pay our bills, like web hosting and audio production software, so that we can keep creating great content for you to listen to each week. Again, that's patreon.com slash twid. We appreciate your support. Right, and now we're going to dive into our quick hit headlines. And for my first one, we're talking about State Question 780 in Oklahoma, which some of our listeners might remember because it changed a handful of offenses, drug crimes specifically, from felonies to misdemeanors. 
this now, Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, the organization who did a lot to pass those initiatives, found that felony filings in the state dropped 26% since July 1st when the provisions took effect. But interestingly, drug distribution charges, which are still a felony, grew by about 18% over the same period. So there's definitely still work to be done. A study by a professor at the University of Georgia has found that in Denver, single-family homes that were close to marijuana dispensaries increased in value 8% more than homes that were further away from dispensaries. While it was a small study with just one city, it's the first real data point we have and runs counter to arguments from prohibitionists who say dispensaries and other marijuana businesses will hurt home values. The Icelandic Red Cross wants to work with the country's Ministry of Health to establish a drug consumption room. Officials said that about 13 people who use drugs die every year, which somehow beats out the number of car accident deaths in Iceland every year. And so this is something that's extremely important to them. So also news, Iceland has very <laughs> few car accident deaths. Yes. Wow. Very few people, I guess, but still, wow, impressive. And finally, the last headline, uh, the Washington Post's investigative team published a really interesting article and video entitled, Meet the 24-year-old Trump campaign worker appointed to help lead the government's drug policy yeah. office. And I highly recommend people check it out, particularly SSDPers and other young drug policy activists. Although, as we hinted at earlier, this might be because the agency is imploding. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay, so now for our weekly forecast. Uh, this Thursday, listeners in New York can attend an event called Drugs on the Darknet, Challenges and Opportunities. It's free and it's hosted by Open Society Foundations. Um, it sounds like a great one for basically anybody, regardless of their level of knowledge about like the darknet and cryptocurrency and all of this, because mm -hmm. it says it's gonna provide a framework for how these things impact like the global drug trade and then how harm reduction really fits into the equation. Um, so it sounds, very interesting. It's from 6 to 8 on Thursday this week. And if any of our listeners go, uh, please let us know how it was. And we actually have a very uh, cryptocurrency uh, <laughs> forecast this week, because mine also is. And mine is that on February 3rd in Tulum, Mexico, there would be a very interesting event called Crypto Psychedelic, which claims that it will, quote, bring together leaders in blockchain and psychedelic science to discuss new possibilities in research, innovation, and community building, end quote. And it's put on by drug event group Symposia, who we are uh, familiar with and big fans mm -hmm. of, and a crypto group that I'm not familiar with, but are probably pretty cool, <laughs> called Decentranet. And it's sponsored also by some familiar faces like MAPS and SSTP. So you can check out their website in our show notes to learn some more. Awesome. These both sound like great events. And that... Mm -hmm. It is about it for this week, but before we wrap up, we do want to thank our sponsor one more time. And as Sam said at the beginning this week, it's listeners like you. And in even more, I guess, one last bit of exciting news, we have revamped our Patreon with new sponsorship levels and rewards. So yeah. if you want, you can head on over to patreon.com slash twid, check it out and become a sponsor for the next episode. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again.
again for listening to Season 5 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Sam Tracy and me, Sarah Merrigan, and produced by Chris Harris. If you liked this episode, please be sure to subscribe so that new episodes will be sent straight to you. If you really liked this episode, you can help other people discover us by writing a quick review in iTunes or wherever you're listening. And if you absolutely love this episode and want to support our work, you can make a one-time contribution using PayPal, become a monthly supporter on Patreon, or even sponsor an episode. For links to those and to learn more about our other projects, head on over to thisweekindrugs.org.